Welcome back to the 126th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including the gene that causes ADHD has been identified, how the American population is a little bit more socially conservative than people thought, and how the commercial real estate market in San Francisco is about to collapse. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight. A story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. All right, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump into a special segment. Whoa, I know, different. If you listen all the time, this is the daily debate, but I have a, a shout out. Now, I'm not going to name this person but you know who you are. It is a very special person's birthday since this is coming out on the 16th of June. I love you. Happy birthday. Like I said, not going to put you on blast. Thanks for always being there. All right, let's go to the daily debate. Is overprescription an issue that we have in the United States? Or maybe you want to frame it as over-medication. It feels as though, you know, there's a pill for everything nowadays. And we're just getting more and more pills shoved down our throats or at least advertised to us to solve this, to solve that, to be given the magical cure to some small thing that we may face during our days. So do you feel that maybe there's an overprescription problem or maybe it really does help address a lot of the issues that we face? I mean, if you think about it, a large majority of adults are on statin to help control their blood pressure. And I can't necessarily say that that is a bad thing. But overall, it feels like we're starting to prescribe more and more drugs and we're starting to prescribe them younger and younger. And I want to hear people's opinions on this. All right, let's jump to the first article, which does have to do with prescriptions and a very prevalent uh, thing that this generation has to deal with, ADHD. This comes from Brighter Side of News. Breakthrough Research has identified the cause of ADHD. And they do say throughout this article that it's not the only cause, but it is a key gene that we're able to identify as having a large effect over whether or not an individual will have ADHD. And as a person who has a very small amount of ADHD, Yes, if you're wondering, it is diagnosed officially. It's not, oh, I think I have ADHD, like you see a lot of people say, or, oh, I think I have this. No, I, I have been diagnosed, but I don't take any medication for it. And you, know, you maybe think it's a little weird that I put it there, but I am, I am proud that I don't take medication for it. And I also feel very blessed that my ADHD isn't as bad as some of the people I know or some of the kids that I've seen in the ski school where I used to work who have to be on it because otherwise they would not be able to function properly. And ADHD has been something that we have become ever more aware of in our society. So I thought that this was an interesting article to pull up and talk about first because there is a interesting discussion that needs to be had as we do more bio research and we understand the genes that play into different diseases or different syndromes or just different factors that affect our lives and we come up with remedies whether it be medical or they be therapeutical or just different ways of approaching how we handle these different issues, diseases, mental health problems 
because we're coming to an age where we're going to be able to better identify what the sources of these issues are, which means they can better address the issues with medicine, but also it may allow us to have a little bit of insight on how to deal with these side effects or symptoms of these different diagnoses that people may receive. So let's jump to the first quote. It kind of outlines what happened here and how they got to where they got. Quote, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder affects an estimated 5% of children worldwide and 2.5% of adults, according to the World Health Organization. The disorder, which is characterized by inattention, hyperactivity, impulsivity, and difficulty focusing, can have a significant impact on an individual's academic and social life. While ADHD is known to have a genetic component, the exact genes involved have remained elusive until now. A team of Israeli scientists has identified a specific gene, CDH2, that appears to play a key role in the development of ADHD. CDH2 encodes N-catarine, a protein that helps with brain synapses activity and formation, end quote. And I am not going to pretend to know what N-catarine is. And yes, by the way that you just heard me say it three different times, that means I honestly have no idea what's going on with that one. But I can definitely speak to the fact that I know a lot of people who have ADHD and I have experienced some of the side effects of ADHD or symptoms of ADHD myself. And I always find the conversation very interesting when it comes up because the question is, how much do you put on the syndrome, the diagnosis, the condition that you have, the disorder that you have, and how much personal responsibility do you take on in order to combat it? And it is a tricky, tricky question because a lot of people, they have symptoms that are so bad that it is hard to just say, oh, no, 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 I don't need a drug. I'm going to do this, that, or the other, and I'm going to mitigate these symptoms through sheer force of will or through changing my habits in a way that will help me. One of the ones that my mom and I always talked about when I was younger was caffeine. I started drinking caffeine a little bit younger than some of my cohorts at school because the doctor said, well, if you don't want to go on actual medication, caffeine can help to you know, bring you down a little bit. For people with ADHD, they start at such a high level. It's not that ADHD crashes you, but it uh, not that caffeine crashes you when you have ADHD but it can kind of bring your level down from the really top end. So you can have a few more natural mitigation factors. And yes, you may say, well, caffeine's still a drug. You're not wrong there. But rather than having prescription medications such as Adderall or Ritalin or things like this, and I technically I think Ritalin's in a little bit of a different category, but instead of going for these heavy medications, there are natural ways to deal with it. I have a, a friend who has borderline personality disorder, and it's not the worst case you could ever have, but they have a situation where in order to regulate their hormones properly and make sure that everything is in order, they have the right serotonin and dopamine levels, they work out almost every single day in order to balance things out. So there are natural remedies that can present themselves in these situations. There are things that you can do to change your habits in order to change the outcome of how the diagnosis or disorder affects you. 
And that is what's nice about being able to identify what gene actually, or the main gene that actually plays in to these different disorders, especially ADHD. Because if we know how that gene interacts, what it causes, what else it causes to change in your brain, then maybe we can have a more effective remedy besides medication that allows us to address the symptoms that you feel or experience when you deal with these disorders. And also, for the people who have it really bad, it also helps us hone in on the different mechanisms or different chemicals that may be needed in these drugs in order to have a balancing effect that doesn't give you such drastic side effects from the medication that it completely throws off the rest of your day. A lot of the talk about ADHD meds is... They normally feel like, oh, they're going through life. They're a little bit overexcited, but they're going through life and they feel clear. And then within the first month of taking ADHD meds before their body's 100% used to it, they feel like they're in a fog. And if they could come up with a medication that is able to best address ADHD without having to put people through that fog and maybe dissuade them from continuing to take their medication, then that could be a good thing going into the future too. Or maybe it will be a way for them to, as a young person, to have natural mitigation factors until their brain's fully developed and then they could take these drugs. Now that we are better aware of what the root of the diagnosis or disorder is. So I know this is going to be a little bit technical, but I'll really quickly describe how it's works, or at least in the words of the researchers, because like I said, I am not necessarily smart enough to truly understand the biomechanics that is going on here. Quote, researchers found that the mutation of the CDH2 alters this activity, affecting molecular pathways and dopamine levels to two specific brain structures, the vetral midbrain and the prefrontal cortex, both of which are involved in ADHD. The study has been carried out by researchers from the Ben Gordon University of Niev and Sorka University Medical Center and is published in a peer-reviewed academic journal, Nature Communications. The team has CRISPR to insert their type of mutation into homogeneous mouse genes, which caused hereditary hyperactivity. So to break that down, because I did breeze through it pretty quickly, what they did was they isolated the CDH2 gene and then they injected or the mutated CDH2 gene and then injected it into mice to see if it would increase their hyperactivity. And they actually have a graph in the original article that highlights, oh, these mice that were injected are moving around a lot more frantically within their box. Now, I would wonder if maybe they had to let them sit down and the, let the mice settle for a while before they put them in the boxes because they may be a little distraught that they just got a needle put inside them, and I wonder how long that cultivation process is like. But sorry, let's jump back to the article. Quote, the, dis- the mice displayed symptoms of ADHD in 15 behavior tests, making them a reliable, reliable model for studying the disorder. Quote, in, di- in addition to the scientific importance of finding a clear delineation of a novel genetic basis and molecular pathway for ADHD, both the mutant human cells and the mouse strain carrying the human mutation can serve as an effective model system for the discovery of novel medications for ADHD, end quote. And what we may learn here, because ADHD does affect the dopamine levels, is that maybe people just need to work out 
a little bit more. Maybe we need to have a mouse wheel inside every single house, a hamster wheel inside of every single house. And if you feel like you really can't do anything, if you're really antsy or you want to read an article, but you want to be doing something else at the same time, you just walk inside your hamster wheel while you're reading that article. You know, that's one of the great mitigation tactics that I seem to have employed or found, which is you're never really doing one thing at a time. And I'm not saying, oh, I'm reading and vacuuming or I'm doing this and this. But most of the time I'll have a podcast or just some music playing. So it is a baseline that my brain's like, okay, we're doing one thing. We're trying to actively listen to the music. But then you're also, you know, vacuuming, doing household chores. You know, everybody does this. It doesn't necessarily have to be for ADHD people. But for ADHD people, it can it seems to be very, very beneficial because you can lock into whatever you're doing with a little bit of background noise so that you don't get too distracted because there is something going on in the background that your brain on some level is listening to, but it no longer has to take up that extra. It's using up the extra bandwidth, basically. If you have 100% bandwidth and you can only use 90 effectively, and that's to pay attention to the conversation, and then that 10 ends up distracting you somehow because you hear a noise to the side. Well, if you constantly have some music playing real low or some calming music playing in the background, then that extra 10 is always taken up, allowing you to fully utilize the 90% of the bandwidth that you could use for that conversation. That's a really basic explanation. I could be 100% wrong medically, but that's what it feels like from how I use music and these little, I use brown noise now when I'm reading, just to have in the background. So if I stop paying attention to the book for half a second, I'll hear a little bit of brown noise, and then I'll be able to re-engage in the book because it's not, oh, I heard a bird. Where's the bird? And you kind of get distracted like a squirrel. So there are natural ways to mitigate some of the effects, and we may see more of these come out as the study evolves, and they have a better understanding of how this gene affects the human brain as we start to test on mice and maybe we'll do human trials for remedies here in the future but a lot of this research is coming out of israel and they have a very strong medical sector especially a medical innovation sector so keep your eye out for more stuff on this if you're interested all right let's jump to our second article that comes from the daily wire quote number of social conservative americans at highest level since 2012 poll you know, that's that's an interesting one to me because I used to have conversations with some parents of kids in my generation who would lean a little bit more conservative. And I would say Gen Z is actually one of the most conservative generations in a while. I'm not saying that they're all the most conservative generation since the baby boomers, but they were more conservative than the millennials. And you saw a slight trend. And now you're starting to see there's a delineation here between economically so economically conservative and socially conservative. And I think that's may that may have been what I was actually speaking to without knowing it at the time. We're more socially conservative, more of the social values, the systems that have been in place that are the fabric of the American institution, we're a little bit more right on. But we've also grown up in a time where the government has actively gotten involved in the economy multiple times during our lifetime, sometimes to good effect, sometimes to bad effect. And we've also seen how the some people in my generation may be disillusioned by the stock market because we saw it crash. We saw that people were selling prime subprime mortgage bonds and profiting off of that, and they were exploiting people who are not in a good position when buying their house and they're trying to get a good rate 
and they maybe have become disillusioned with the economy, and that's why they may be a little bit more economically progressive or on the liberal side. So I think that it's, it's interesting that they really highlight socially conservative here, and I would want a comparison between the social conservatism of the population as well as the economic conservatism or just the economic affect and the social affect of the population of the United States put next to each other and see if there is a change in Gen Z more drastic than any of the previous generations. I'd be very curious to see that. I'll be looking out for that. And if I do see it and you want to hear it, I will put it up either as a separate post on the YouTube page or I will put it into an article because I think that would be an interesting one to talk about. So this poll comes from Gallup. Quote, the number of Americans who identify as socially conservative has reached the highest level since 2012, according to a Gallup poll released last week. The numbers are part of Gallup's Values and Beliefs Survey, which was conducted May 1st through the 24th, with a random sample of 1,011 respondents. It found that 38% of Americans identify as very conservative or conservative, up from 33% in 2022, 30% in 2021, and tied with 2012 numbers. This comes as the number of Americans who identify as very liberal or liberal dropped to 29% from 34% in 2020. Quote, for the most part of the last eight years, Americans were about as likely to say that they were liberal as conservative on social issues, Gallup senior editor Jeffrey Jones said, end quote. And that's a very interesting thing to break down here. So we're starting to see a resurgence in social conservatism. And, of course, you may be thinking back to 2012. What was happening in 2012? Well, we had the Tea Party. That was actually more of an economic conservatism movement. There was a little bit of social conservatism, but it was mainly in response to the bailouts that happened in 2008 and trying to get the government's hands off of the economy. So, you know, it's interesting that we're seeing this happen now, and it's on the social side that we're seeing the levels, you know, similar to 2012, but that was after a time when there was a more economically conservative movement forming. And now you're really starting to see socially conservative movements form across the United States. I mean, look at TPUSA, Turning Point USA. They have put together a network that's not just going to college campuses and affecting public opinion and talking to young conservatives, young liberals, young people at colleges, but they're also now putting in voting infrastructure in order to get their people into the Republican state parties and affect the outcome. So you are seeing this rising of a more conservative movement that's trying to pull the neocons out of the Republican Party and say, no, 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 we're keeping this the Republican Party, not the right wing of the Uniparty in Washington. But you also see this come up with a lot of social issues that have become really prominent, whether it be after the George Floyd riots, when it comes to race or LGBTQ issues, or I would even argue abortion. So you see a lot of these hotbed topics are pulling people and making the conversation a lot more divisive. But it seems that the conservatives are winning a little bit. Their numbers are ticking up year after year. But remember, once they push too far, you're going to have people jumping back to the liberals. And I'm not saying that they're going to push too far. But this is how it happens. When conservatives or liberals see that they're gaining, that their issues are, you know, their issues are really speaking to American people, they take it as a, oh, a write-off to do whatever they wish. 
and then they move forward. They go a little bit too far, pushing their social or economic agenda, and then there's a backlash. So this is the backlash to the Biden era, just as there was a backlash to the Trump era. And if the Republicans get in and they get too heavy-handed and they don't get into office and act like rational people and hold the U.S. economy and the society steady during the first four years, you'll see another backlash and we'll jump back to a Democratic president. That is my prediction now. And, you know, let's be clear, nothing special. Anybody listening is like, yes, Alex, we know it's a pendulum, blah, blah, blah. But it's only a pendulum, and it only swings faster if the conservative sides look at this momentum. They look at the fact that, oh, wow, our numbers are close to 2012. And after 2012, after Obama's presidency, they elected Trump, one of the more interesting figures on the conservative side, and they pushed it too far with Trump. And then guess what happened? Biden came in. So all I'm saying is you speed up the pendulum if you push too hard and you take these numbers as a rite of passage, as a way to vilify the fact that you're, you believe your platform is the one that the American people want. Just because more people say they're conservative doesn't necessarily mean that they buy into the entire conservative agenda. It just means that they think the liberals, or at least in my opinion, they believe that the liberals speak to them less. If the liberals go back to the position they were in in the 1980s, I bet a whole bunch of these people that said that they were conservative would jump straight back to the liberal category. It's only because they're pushing more progressive things and more out-of-the-box things that you see this big swing. So I want to talk about the key demographics before we move on to the final article because this does highlight something and it speaks a little bit to the idea that I was talking about earlier about Gen Z, but also it does highlight that millennials have shifted a lot too. So maybe my thesis and hypothesis is wrong at this point. Maybe we're seeing a conservative wave taking over the millennials as well. Quote, social conservatism for Americans between the ages of 18 to 29 has had a 6% increase from 2021, while those ages 30 to 49 saw a a 13% increase, and those ages 50 to 64 saw an 11% increase. So you see, as we go up, we're going Gen Z, 6% increase, Millennials, and a little bit of Gen Xers, 13% increase, and then we're getting into more of the boomer era, that's a 11% increase. And the reason I think that this actually does speak a little bit to Gen Z being more conservative is because you don't see as drastic of an increase within that age group compared to the millennials. So that either speaks to the fact that they're staying liberal or it, my theory would be that they're actually more conservative values in that generation to begin with. But that is my interpretation of the data. There's no st- statistical backing to that. That's just how I would look at it considering I go around and talk to people from Gen Z pretty often. I went to college and I met a lot of people from my own generation. I mean, that is how college works, right? It's not like I'm going to college with 32-year-olds. I'm going to college with kids from my generation who are 2022, just getting into the workforce or just now getting out of college. And there was a little bit of, if not a conservative strain, then definitely a libertarian strain. And the libertarian party more aligns with conservative values nowadays than liberal values. But, you know, that's just my opinion on the matter. There is an interesting part to the survey, though, which is, quote, Americans over the age of 65 were the only age group that saw a decrease, dropping to 42% from 43% in 2021. 
Similarly, the number of Americans who identify as economically conservative has reached 44%, up from 40% in 2022, and more than double of the 21% of Americans who identify as very liberal or liberal economically, according to the poll. So that's interesting. Well, end quote. That's really interesting, in, in my opinion. And I think that is spurred on by looking at the policies of this administration and how it's hurting every average American's checkbook. And even if that's not necessarily true, even if some people are still getting by, they, at least the Republicans have really strong messaging on this one. And that's why it could be shifting people to believe that they're a little bit more economically conservative. I think that at the end of the day, if you actually got rid of a lot of the talking points and you had a conversation where you sat down with people, you'd find a lot of people who are in the middle. They're, for the most part, they're not fully laissez-faire. They say the market should operate as it should, that supply and demand should really be the key factor determining prices. But you, I also feel like you would find a segment of the population or actually just a large majority of the population who understands that, yeah, the government needs to step in sometimes. We need to have some heavy-handed regulations sometimes to get companies in order. And that's, again, from the experience of talking with a lot of different people. Now, where that regulation comes in, what aspect of the economy needs to be regulated, that varies very widely from people. But we really have moved on past the traditional conservative view of laissez-faire that was really popular during the 60s, 70s, and 80s because of the Chicago School of Economics and Milton Freeman. And we are in an era where people are more willing for the government to step in. And that is a not necessarily traditionally conservative, if you're going back a few decades, point of view on the economy. But conservative for nowadays, saying less regulation over lots of regulation, probably a large majority of the population's there. But it still has shifted. The Overton window has shifted to that regard. All right, so, you know, that was a long rant, and that was a lot of data that you just took in. So let's talk about something that is absolutely depressing. I know, right? It's so much fun here on this program. We always talk about the happy issues, but I will say there is a silver lining. If you don't live in San Francisco, then you can sit here and and laugh at what's happening in San Francisco. If you have family there, I'm sorry that I'm laughing at them. I'm not actually laughing at them. I feel bad for the city and the people, but maybe we can have a little bit of joy that comes from a story like this. It comes from the Cato Institute. Government failure erases billions of dollars from the commercial real estate market valuation in San Francisco. So this is really a follow-up to my one of my previous podcasts where I talked about how commercial real estate, I've actually talked about it twice, how commercial real estate is in real danger. And the last one was talking about the study that came out of New York universities, how New York is going to face trouble. And they kind of highlighted, oh, well, San Francisco is also in a bad place now. Well, now the Cato Institution is coming for San Francisco and their governments. It's coming straight for their neck. Quote, San Francisco is proving to be ground zero in the nationwide commercial real estate collapse. While the value of offices and malls are tumbling in many U.S. cities, the losses in San Francisco are more dramatic and, unlike elsewhere, have extended to hotels. City and state government mismanagement have played a major role in destroying billions of dollars in accessible real estate values, but the role of these policies is easily overlooked. San Francisco's plight was thrown into sharp relief on June 5th when the owner of two downtown hotels containing combined 2,925 rooms announced that it would cease making payments on a $725 million mortgage backed by the properties. 
Commercial bond investors will now have to find a company willing to purchase the hotels at a small fraction of their estimated 2022 valuation of $1.561 billion. And you may have heard this about companies pulling out or the hotel chain pulling out of San Francisco. And you've probably also seen a lot of crime on TikTok or on Instagram or on YouTube that it originates in San Francisco because they made a rule where if you steal under a certain amount, then it is no longer a misdemeanor and the company should just just let you do your thing. And a lot of San Francisco area stores have been pulling out like CVS. They're saying, no, no, we're, we're getting out. We are getting affected by this crime policy too much. We can't sustain business here, which means there's less investment in the community. And you're starting to see it have a wider ripple effect. But there is one other piece of policy that I thought was actually really interesting that I didn't know was a thing. So in San Francisco, they have a, they had, you know, they still have one officer now, but they used to have 73 officers. Let me make sure I have that correct. Yes, they had 73 officers that would be basically private security. They would be trained in police tactics and they would have a robust training program, and then they could be hired out to companies in order to make sure that they are safe, secure, and that nobody is trying to rob them or anything like this. The problem is the city police, they have to approve these security guards. And what they could do and what they've done instead is stop approving them and then renting out, or they have a separate program, where they're saying, okay, you need police protection. Well, you can still hire us, but we're going to charge you overtime rates. So the unions are like, oh, why would we give the license to other security officers to do a job that we can do and get our members paid at overtime rates for working at these stores and protecting them? So that's one policy that I had no idea that is actually decreasing the amount of private security that you can find across San Francisco. With less private security, less businesses are protected, meaning more businesses get robbed or attacked. And then when that happens, over time, these companies pull out because they're like, we cannot sustain this. And then also because of increased crime or not just increased crime, but lack of a feeling of security, less people come to the cities And then guess what happens? The tourism market goes down, meaning these hotels aren't making enough money, so they pull out, which means there's less investment infrastructure-wise from the hotels. And you can kind of see how it has a ripple effect, and it kind of destroys the inner part of these cities. So we need policy change. And to be clear, I know I'm complaining on this one, I do not know the policy change. Maybe have more strict programs in place. Maybe San Francisco could bring back this private officer or security officer program and make sure that it gets the funding it needs. But this is a multifactorial issue because some people are leaving the city because they can go and do their tech sector job remote from North Dakota as long as they have internet. There are lots of factors here. So it has to be a full one in middle of the problem. Uh, say, hey, yes, we understand what's going on here and it needs to be a full revitalization plan in order to get these cities back on track. And maybe they should stop worrying about policies that they're where they just give money away to people and they should actually focus on restoring the inner heart of their cities. 
That's just my opinion on the matter. I am not on the San Francisco board. I am not there in the community. And maybe people really like it, and I just don't understand. Maybe I am an ignorant person from the East Coast. That is also true. Or at least, I take that back. It could be true that I'm an ignorant person, but it is true that I am from the East Coast. All right, so let's jump to our daily delight. This one comes from Times Now. And I'm not going to read the headline because it kind of gives away the story, and I think this is a really cute one. But, you know, there's this feeling that you have late at night, and sometimes you just need a snack, and you just need to go to the fridge, or you have to go somewhere to grab something. Quote, there are all sorts of animal videos on the Internet. While some can be scary, others are nothing less than adorable. In a video going viral on social media, an elephant from Amachan Wildlife Sanctuary in Guwahati has been seen getting sweets and biscuits at a local shop, end quote. And, you know, like I said, sometimes you want that snack, but you don't want to go all the way down to the Walmart, so you just run down to the corner store real quick. Quote, reportedly the elephant walked around six kilometers, admittedly that's a little bit further than a corner store, to, quote, to reach a local shop in the Satagona region. The animal had some sweets and biscuits at the shop before walking away, end quote. And if you want to see any of the cute photos or videos of this guy doing such, or you want to read any of today's articles, there'll be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find a link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, Podvine, as well as the Twitter handle at Your Daily Flip. This week, I put up two Twitter tirades. They are Twitter-exclusive content. The first one was really good. The second one, I started talking about dystopian books because I'm currently reading Handmaid's Tale, and it probably wasn't my best work in the world, but I enjoyed having that discussion. And if you want to check it out, at Your Daily Flip on Twitter. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.